All right, and welcome to another episode of Developing Communities, the Dev Real podcast. Uh, very excited to have a great guest with us today, uh, Heidi. So, Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. It's good to be here. So, as as always, uh, you're here uh, with. Uh, the developer uh, relationship growth manager extraordinaire, Alex from Ponycode. <laughs> I was about to congratulate you about how professional you sound, and then you you just mess it up on the, on the last word. <laughs> yeah, of course. And myself, Mackenzie Jackson, developer advocate at uh, Git Guardian. Uh, but uh, Heidi, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us uh, a little bit, uh, tell the audience a little bit about uh, the exciting things you're working on. Excellent. My name is Heidi Waterhouse. I'm a transformation advocate at LaunchDarkly, which is a title I got to make up myself because it's more accurate about what I do, which is talking business people into accepting that changing things is not the end of the world um, and that they're going to be okay. And the things that I'm excited about working on right now are I am co-chairing SREcon this fall, and mm -hmm. I am also with a team releasing a book on documentation for developers. Wow. Okay. So usually I last about five minutes before I go off the script, but I'm just going to go off the script <laughs> from the beginning. I want to, I'm curious to know more about uh, the transformation advocate. What, like what specifically you, maybe we can unpack this a little bit more because I feel like there's so many different titles for advocates because so many people don't feel like this that generic developer advocate or you know devrel works with them so what what drove you to to transformation uh, advocate and a title i love by the way uh, the realization that organizational transformation can't just be driven by developers it has to be a commitment that the whole organization makes and that the decision makers at more management levels are really worried about digital transformation. They really want it to happen. They care about it happening, but they're also really concerned that we're going to mess something up because unlike developers who are like, did I make code? Did it work? The, the business thinkers are like, did the code that you made solve the problem that people are having? Like, are we doing the right thing? So when I say I'm a transformation advocate, what I really want to be talking to about is like, how does digital transformation make your business better? And not just your business. How does digital transformation make the, the process of working for your company better? Like, it turns out that psychological safety is a big determinant for how well we're doing as teams and, and how nice it is to work for somebody. And so when we're talking about digital transformation, all of that gets rolled up into an idea that needs to appeal to more than just developers. That's uh, very interesting. Right. So you're kind of a digital transformation advocate, first of all. And, and I feel even though we're now in 2021 and digitalization is everywhere, do you think there's still a need for more people like you? You can build bridges be between a developer team and business people to have an open and constructive conversation about digital transformation? Or do you feel like there is now more maturity and organization are more capable of doing it themselves organically? I think there's still a lot of space in, in this area. Like, please come join me in the transformation advocate world because we need a lot of people who are able to say, okay, what is the business need that is driving your 
your digital transformation? Are you are you a major retailer that has had security problems and you need to really uplevel your security? Or are you a bank that can't find any COBOL programmers and you need to get off your mainframe because you can't find anybody to maintain it? Like Those are real examples of people that I've worked with that are like, I, I understand I need to do this. I don't know how. I don't know what the best practice is. I'm I'm calling in a bunch of experts because, you know, at this organizational size, they can afford a bunch of experts. But like, what is, if I'm only going to do one, one transformation every 20 years, what should it be? There are teams out there who are still learning agile, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's, we're not, we're not, uh, you know, technology is here, but it's not universally distributed. You must run into some uncanny uh, conversation and situation with this such a wide diversity of of people with a, such a wide diverse uh, relationship to digitalization. No. Yeah, and, and it's it, it's exciting because it's like it it lets me dig into what are the problems for people. And is there like a common ground a situation you find every time? Uh, a struggle that is common to everybody or really every situation is very different for you every time? Uh, It's usually there's a core that I've been working on, which is called the sort of the paradox of speed. And Nicole Forsgren, Gene Kim and Jez Humble wrote Accelerate. And this is like the textbook that I'm using. And it says, it feels unsafe to go fast because we feel like we need to do all this checking, but it's actually safer to do smaller things more quickly. And the analogy that I am using for this is learning to ride a bicycle. And this actually doesn't work as well for European audiences because you have strider bikes. Uh, Americans don't have that. We're like, learn to pedal and steer and stay up at the same time. Good luck, kid. Um, (laughs) But... But it seems really counterintuitive to a child when you say, if you go fast enough, your bike will not fall over. And we're saying the same thing to organizations. If you go fast enough, your deployments won't fail. Or if they fail, it won't be a big deal. And and they're like, but I've had all of these years of experience of a deploy failed and it was an outage and people yelled at me and it was just a problem. And so when I think about this, I'm like, okay, it's like riding a bicycle. You have to trust me that going faster is going to make you safer. The other analogy I use for this that works on almost all industries is it's like playing penny slots. It's really hard to spend a day and lose $1,000 playing penny slots. Like It just takes too much time to do that. Every bet is so small that win or lose is not a big deal. If you're playing at a high stakes table or even like a hundred dollar table, then it's really pretty easy to lose a thousand dollars in the course of a day. And that's how our deployments work right now. We're, We're making pretty large bets and sometimes we lose and then we're out for the day. So I, I like to use those analogies to help people understand why smaller bets faster is the way that software in general is going. It's, it's amazing. I, you're, you're really fighting against what people have learned, that confirmation bias and that, that learned knowledge to, to break them out of that, which uh, it sounds fascinating and interesting, but it also sounds like it would be frustrating <laughs> sometimes to absolutely do that. 
Yeah, it's really interesting because they understand that they have a problem. They're like, like deployments scare me. Like I am stressed out when it's deployment time. Uh, we work toward this for a quarter and it's very stressful and I don't sleep and then I don't sleep because I'm staying up watching the deployment bridge. And I don't I don't want people to have to live with that, like that. I want them to be able to deploy on Friday morning and be like, OK, all right, mm. look, oh, it's Sunday or it, it's Friday and it's the summer. I'm going to go home at noon. Nothing's going to go that wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Deploy deploy at 4 p.m. on a Friday. The ultimate uh, <laughs> the ultimate test of confidence in your system. <laughs> mm-hmm. Can you do it? Uh, right. You know, one of the things that I find interesting when talking to different advocates, particularly in different roles, is, is finding out, so who do you feel, you know, who do you feel is, if we can put it in these terms, your client, who, who are you advocating for? Is it businesses? Is it the developers? Is it everyone? Uh, you know, what, who, who are your stakeholders in this role as kind of the transformation advocate? So probably the the people that I'm talking to, like when I visualize who I'm talking to, they are uh, system architects. They are the poor person who got pulled in as VP of DevOps, um, <laughs> and they're trying to DevOps their company by brute force. Uh, they're they're not like the the base level developers i don't hate those people but they're they're not exactly who i'm talking to i'm talking to the people who are like okay but what do developers need to be doing what's our roadmap what's our plan and how do we get there definitely you know i think if this podcast ever gets big enough to have merch i want a t-shirt that says devops by brute force that's going to be the first <laughs> piece of merch that i'm going to bring out you can stickers I the stick is yes. I got to create a Kickstarter to try and <laughs> get the DevOps by brute force uh, t-shirt out. You could put you up know, a red I, bubble right now. I mean, <laughs> yeah, this is true. I do. I, I do love this kind of concept of really knowing who you are because and, and who you're you're talking to. One of the biggest problems that I face coming into uh, the role as a developer advocate, which as We've talked just before, you know, I didn't even know that was a title before I got the job, um, you know, <laughs> but uh, I thought I was a salesperson, you know, I intellectually knew I, I was, but it's this, you know, like to me, it really was uh, so unclear of not through my own, through my own confirmation bias and my own kind of lived experience of like what, what someone that is employed at a company should do, that's get sales, right? So I'm talking to developers to try and get sales where, you know, it's really not. It's about trying to educate, encourage people to take positive change and support them along that way. And I mean, I, ha- I have only once mentioned who I work for and yet I'm, I'm out there like preaching this, this wild message. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that, I think that, that, sums up, that, that sums up a lot about advocacy and why, I, I mean, it's something it would be, it would be nearly impossible for me to go into a sales role now. I think I would just you know, talk about the overall problems too much. But I think the other role that advocates have that's really important and is less showy is I take back information from the people that I talk to in the wild and I take it back to product and I say, hey, did you know that most people are doing this and they don't? Because they're developers mm-hmm. who are working to a roadmap that's set, you know, 
by byproduct who is doing analysis, but it's easiest to do analysis of your existing customers. And one of the bridges that DevRel builds is analysis of the people who aren't yet your customers and what they need mm. and what they're asking for and what's stopping them. Yeah. It's less, it's less about trying to sell, a, sell something that you have and more about trying to build something for them. Right. It's, yeah. it's the first time I hear someone have such a, a, pers a high perception of the organizational level and, and the overall mechanism behind just the product and, and the developer team. I, I was wondering, I don't think you mentioned it, like how did you get there? Like what's your background? What's your experience? Like did you, have you been on the business side purely and entirely on the business side or have you always been working with developers? What's your, what's your experience, if I may ask? So... I came to this after 20 years of technical writing, um, which is really a systems thinking job. Like if you understand the whole of your, your software experience from beginning to end, it's almost impossible to avoid learning about the business problems. And so uh, I was a technical writer for several companies. I worked for Microsoft. I worked for SonicWall, like a bunch of, of companies. Uh, and then I went independent for a few years. And uh, then I got this opportunity to come do developer relations. And I was like, I, I don't know what that is. I, <laughs> I've never done that. I, I only sort of like I meet those people at the conferences I go speak at. But I, I, don't, I don't know how to do that. Uh, but it turns out that I did know how to do that because what I really care about is making sure that people understand why they're doing what they're doing. Like, I'm super lazy and I really hate wasted work. And sympathetically, I really hate when people have been told to work on the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So that really gave me a springboard into what is developer advocacy. Well, it's talking about what problems developers have and how to solve them. You, you, you seem extremely connected to the community and that. And I want to ask, because we talked about this coming up, is that, you know, what's your experience with being a developer yourself? You know, are you someone that, that learned to code? Did you come up through that? Or have you always been more on the communications side of this kind of development journey? Yeah, I don't code. Um, I do code, but not in a way that anybody thinks of. Uh, my, my first language was HTML and it is still my true love. And I am still mad about, uh, Markdown because it's just stupid HTML with fewer tables. Um, <laughs> and also there isn't one Markdown, there are Markdowns. <laughs> yeah, this is true. This annoys me. And I, and I think <laughs> Markdown's just dumb HTML is the second t-shirt we're coming out with <laughs> on the podcast. The merchandising is just doing itself at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have to send me stickers when you make them. Okay, uh, okay. So I don't find coding that interesting. It's not the kind of problem I enjoy solving. The kind of problem I enjoy solving is much more on the communication people-y end. And I think that a lot of people think you have to do coding to get into DevRel. And it is true that if there is going to be like... A, a fully featured DevRel team, you need somebody who can do what I call building toys. You need somebody who can take your product and make playable demos and demonstrate 
what is possible. Uh, but I don't think that even needs to be your first developer advocate. What you need first is somebody who cares about the experiences of your community. And for my work, you know, I say developer advocate, a lot of it was DevOps and, and sysadmins. Like we haven't, we haven't really talked about the fact that even in a DevOps world, there are still sysadmins out there who are still running boxes on-prem because somebody has to do it. And mm. I want to talk to them about their operations problems because I think operations problems are actually a more interesting problem to me than developer problems. Like, how do you keep things up? How do you make sure they stay up? How do you update them? How do you know you got everything updated? What what can you observe about your system? Is there a way to optimize that? Like these are really interesting questions to me. Yeah, and you know, I can I can see I can see that the linkages is here, but you know, an area that you have a, a, a lot of experience in from your your very impressive uh, resume is developer documentation and areas like that. You know, do you find have you found that you know not being a developer and being able to take uh, a look at a larger level has helped kind of bridge gaps, has helped kind of show through documentation, you know, connect some dots that has happened. Do you feel like there's, there, there is some advantages in, uh, you know, not, not, not saying that it's a bad thing to know how to cope, but some advantages in not being in that kind of micro focus? Yeah, I think because code isn't the first thing I reach for to solve problems, it's helpful for me because I can, I can say, oh, uh, okay, but what is the problem behind this problem? Like, not why isn't the API connecting, but have we configured our API language and endpoints in a way that's useful for everybody? And yeah. being able to pull back and say, if I had to write about this, if I had to explain this to somebody else, would it be explicable or is it too complicated? And if it's too complicated, maybe the solution is not better documentation. Um, the thing I said when I was a tech writer all the time is that documentation is a failure of user interface. Nobody reads documentation because they want to. This is not true. Some people do. But most people are reading the documentation because they're already pissed off at your product. And so everybody is coming into documentation as search because they're angry that something has gone wrong. And once you accept that as the starting premise, you're like, let me give you the answer and get out of your way. And I think that not having code in my tool belt means that I reach more for why are you angry? Like what is frustrating you? And how can we solve that together? It's it's so interesting yeah. because I we were talking about it last week saying like for, for, for my company, the documentation is the second most visited part of the website after the homepage. And so automatically you're thinking, wow, if everybody is going to see my documentation, I want to, to make it you know better in as many ways I, I can. But to think uh, that's a failure which I should, my end goal should be to have to have the documentation part of the of my website, the least visited part of my website, that completely changed the the mindset of the team. I'm sure. Yeah, and like documentation is crucial and it's super important, and I want everybody to have good documentation. I think the most important thing we do to improve a documentation site is to put good search on it. And by good search, I do not mean the built-in Confluence search, which is terrible, mm. FYI. Um, 
So you put good search on it and you index it. And that's the first thing because people are coming to you asking questions. And the second thing you do for good documentation is look at the heat map, both of what people are actually hitting and what they're searching for and not finding. So if you have a bunch of search terms that that go nowhere or end up with people sort of wandering around in circles, you know that you haven't answered their question. And so you write a page that answers the question. And then ideally, you go back to the developers and say, look, people are really confused by how to do this PGP key. Is there a way that we can build in an interface that does it for them, that takes some of the work out, that... Uh, one of the things I really love, like gold standard documentation is Stripe's documentation, because off to the side, there is an example of what your your call would look like, including your particular key that you could just copy and paste into your stuff. That is good documentation because it solves the frustration of what do I need to put where? Yeah. I, I, we, we've talked about documentation before, and uh, I, I think you will, you will laugh at this, but you know, it was one of my first times at kind of writing some code, and I was very focused on making it look pretty and, you know, like making it look nice. And so I did, I did the one thing that I've now learned is that if you want to piss off developers, the easiest way to do it is to turn your code examples into PNG files <laughs> that look pretty in a terminal. <laughs> yeah, no, I bet they were very angry. They're like, I can't, I can't copy this. This is. <laughs> it what great, was the though. April Fool's joke uh, <laughs> that Cassidy did about the the special keyboard that was just Control V and Control C? <laughs> <laughs> With a with a with a button to head straight to Stack Overflow. <laughs> yeah. Just before so, we yeah. dig deeper in, into documentation, I had one last question because I know it's a topic that comes often. You talk with such a control vocabulary. I can I feel from here that you've thought your processes so so well and 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 you've embraced your role uh, that you've created uh, so well. Uh, was there any imposter syndrome at any point? Uh, how do you build your expertise and confidence? Like, well, is it your personality type from day zero? You just build that role around yourself and 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 make the best out of it, or or were you a time when you were like a, a scared junior into that devrel position? Oh no, I still I still have days where I regularly lie on the carpet and go, I can't believe if people expect me to be smart. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. Uh, but the thing is, like, fake it till you make it is not really useful advice because anxiety doesn't work like that. Uh, but getting out of my own head and concentrating on what other people need helps me a lot. So I give, in the before times, before COVID, I did 40 plus events a year. Um, speaking, hosting, emceeing, all sorts of things. I'm I'm a very comfortable looking uh, public speaker. That doesn't mean that I don't have nerves, that I don't have anxiety, that I don't get on the stage and look at all the people and go, you're really here to listen to me? Me? I'm saying all the same things everybody else is saying. I don't, I'm not offering you anything new and you're all looking at me. <laughs> um, and then I pick one face in the audience and I go, okay, but this talk is written for somebody who needs to hear this. And even though other people have said it and there have been books and everything, uh, 
hearing things different ways helps us learn them. And when I remember that, I'm like, okay, well, like my my sort of folksy analogies are going to work for somebody in a way that, you know, the code didn't. And the code is going to work for somebody in the way that the folksy analogies don't. At the end of all of my talks, I have one slide that summarizes the whole talk. And it said the, the abbreviation on it is TLRT, too long, red Twitter. Because when you're on stage, you can look at the audience and you can tell who is checking their work email on their laptop while they're theoretically in the talk by you. And uh, I used to be kind of mad about that. I'm like, I went to a lot of effort to put this together. Come on, pay attention. Uh, but no, uh, sometimes people just need to be listening with half an ear or reading email. And that's okay. That's That's what they need to get out of this. But the... The problem that I really have uh, is accepting compliments. And this is the thing. This is my growing edge is what we call it when we're doing coaching. Um, Corey Quinn was really nice to me about category creation earlier this year. And I literally, after I got offline with him, I had to go lie down on my big squishy rug that I have for this purpose and just breathe deeply because people being nice to me is is just so uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, compliments, not that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Alex. No more uh, compliments. Yeah, yeah. No, have, have a rug and no compliments. It's very clear. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's it's a funny it's a funny variant on imposter syndrome where you're like you're a person I respect, uh, and you respect me too, and I don't know how to feel about that. Mm. Yeah. No, I think it's I I think that uh, like it's a very relevant way because uh, sometimes we're in uh, you know people are appreciative or giving you compliments on that. There's a thing in the back of your head that goes, yes, but what if they find out? <laughs> what if they find out it's not real? Like, you know, like, what if they ask me a question that it's just going to completely trump me and then I'm going to be, you know, have egg, egg on my face. So, <laughs> well, yeah. but I, I, I completely, I, I completely uh, can get that. But wh while we're talking about, the, you know, these different skills, I, I, have a, I have a question that's kind of, as someone that doesn't reach for code as your first uh, tool in your tool belt, as you said, I liked that analogy that you used. But uh, you know, what what are the core skills that a developer advocate um, you know should? And we, we know that there's there's multiple different developer advocates, so there's different roles. But you know, let's let's look at you know one that you know similar to you. What, what are some of the core skills in terms of being able to to get out there uh, that you feel like they should they should have? I think communication is really key. And the biggest part of communication that I've learned is understanding who your audience is and, and what they need. There's this great book by Kathy Sierra called Badass, Making Users Awesome. And it's all about the idea of software design as something that should be transparent. She says, nobody wants to use an ATM. We want to get cash. The ATM is just a necessary impedance on our way to having money. And mm. thinking about our software as a necessary impedance for people to do the thing that they actually want to do uh, helps me understand a lot of, of the things that I'm trying to communicate. So when I'm talking to developers, I, I try not to say it quite that way because <laughs> that's what they do every day. Uh, but I think it's useful to say, like, as developers what is your actual goal? And and that's very seldom, like at good companies, it's aligned with their KPIs, their, their key indicators of progress. Um, 
but at lots of companies it isn't. And so they'll say, well, I need to get this project done. Okay, why do you need to get that project done? Well, my my manager told me to. Okay, that's fine. Why did your manager tell you to? Because his manager told him to. Okay, but what is the problem that you're trying to solve so I can help you? And so I really, I do a lot of um, sort of investigative reporting. I ask a lot of questions. Uh, the public speaking is useful, but honestly, the range of a talk is not as big as the range of a blog post. For one thing, I am tragically monolingual and <laughs> Every time I'm dropped in another country, like the 20 words of various languages I know surface in my head. And I, I, a couple of years ago, I went through France with nothing but Spanish in my head. I'm like, that's very useful. Thank you. <laughs> now, now I look like an American who doesn't understand the difference between French and Spanish. <laughs> uh, oh, except for the, the, the part where I requested water in German. That was great. Um, so the public speaking is showy. And flashy and DevRels love it because we get to hang out with each other. Liz Fong Jones once said something really useful to me. She said, we are all co-workers who happen to be employed by different companies. And mm. I really feel like that's true in the DevRel community is that we have this really collegiate feeling about, you know, we're, we're all doing sort of the same job and it's frequently very different than anything else in the company. And so we sort of, hang together as as uh, comrades. But it's the public speaking is showy, but it's not everything. It is the investigation of what people need from you and how to make that connection between your audience, whoever they are, and your company so that you're you're helping your company deliver the right things, solve the right problems. Yeah, it's very true what you say. And, you know, I touched on it. There's, uh, there's, there's no group of people that's more welcoming than developer advocates when you're trying to learn how to, how to be in a, you know, how, to, how to kind of play, play in this field. And so many people kind of focus on that pre presenting side of things and the communication part of it. But I like that there, you know, like there, there are much, there are much deeper levels to it, to it. But that is one of the kind of the thing that's in your face, the thing that is very easy to share on social media. So I think people can feel like it. I also think that that puts some people off becoming a developer advocate. So, you know, not being able to, not having experience as a coder is one, one area where people probably get put off and think that they can't do this. And the other is not being comfortable public speaking and that. But there are other ways. If you have a passion for connecting the community together, and there are other ways to do that. There are other ways to educate that it's not all about that. Yeah. And I think so. And we all have these things that we're better at and we're worse at. Like public speaking is something I've been doing since I was a kid because because my mom's a pastor. And when your mom's a pastor at a small church, sometimes it's your turn to to read the scriptures, whether or not you were prepared to do that this morning. Like <laughs> get up and read a thing. Um so it was never like a catastrophic anxiety for me. I, I competed in high school and stuff. Um, so that was an easy part for me. I had tearful breakdowns at the start of COVID when I started having to record because recording video means that you have to watch yourself and you have the chance to go back and do it again. 
So the first talk I recorded, I think, was for DockerCon. And I probably recorded it end-to-end more than 10 times. And that's just, and it was it was crushing because I'm like, okay, but I sounded weird there or the lighting was weird there or I stumbled. And when you stumble in person, it's not a big deal. People will sort of like, when you're in person, your audience wants you to succeed. This is a really useful thing to remember when you're anxious on stage. Uh, everybody up there is sympathizing with you and imagining how they would feel if they were on stage and they want you to get through this. And that energy is is there. And they're like, oh, okay, you stumbled, but that's all right. I'm still with you. I'm still following you. If I did that, I would be really flustered and you're doing great. When you're recording, there's none of that bounce back. And there is only the self-criticism. And it was so difficult for me. And really, recording a conference talk is the least effective way to use video communication. Because it's very mm. static and because you don't have that that group feeling of we're all watching this together, everybody's watching it pretty much alone, even if it's at a conference that's broadcasting it. Um, and so it's a really different medium, even though it seems like the same. And so that was really hard for me to learn and reminded me that there's never going to be a time in this job that I'm not like frantically learning something. It might be how to do my job or it might be a new technology. Uh, I used to say when I was a technical writer that if I had known I was going to leave college and spend my life writing research papers, I might have rethought the career. <laughs> uh, but that's really what technical writing is, is like, go talk to a bunch of people and figure out how it works and write a paper. Okay, now do it again. <laughs> but uh, um, you're, there is so much learning and progression in your path. It is like, I, I, what are your sources? You talked about a coach earlier, and I was kind of curious about that. Is Do you have like coaches or do you do you source yourself new ways to learn and new stuff to learn? What's the, What's the scope? How do you keep teaching yourself? Uh, I do sometimes get coaches. I think this year I'm going to spend my education allowance on an elocution coach, which is somebody who helps you understand how to project your voice and uh, make it easier to listen to you. And most of all of what I know is self-taught. So I'm I'm curious what somebody could teach me, right? Uh, the things that I learn are usually whatever is most urgent for me to continue to uh, live indoors and eat food. And which is really a, a high priority for me. I'm I'm into it. Uh, so that wasn't the direction I thought this was going. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So if if a fallback position is I I get a job doing something boring and repetitive, I will in fact end up not living indoors and eating food because I'm really bad at boring and repetitive. I've talked about mm. this other places, but I have ADHD which is, a, and if, if you look at the DevRel community, not alone. Um, <laughs> we're, we're all just little anxious, twitchy balls of energy for the most part. Um, but it means that one of the things that, that drives me is I need novelty. I need to be learning new things. I need to be able to connect them to other things because if I can do that, then I can build a bigger, better picture of the world. And I find that intrinsically satisfying. 
uh, if I'm asked to do something repetitive, I don't find it satisfying and I kind of stop doing it and uh, then I get fired. And I have legit gotten fired from jobs, not DevRel jobs, but tech writing jobs because uh, I got bored and checked out. So DevRel for me is an interesting place because like it's it's like the way it worked out, it's like getting a whole education every year. Like if you put together the number of hours I spent sitting in talks on how to do DevOps and Kubernetes and security and, you know, whatever else was going on at the conference, I'm like, oh, this is like a master's level set of classes as far as classroom time. And all I have to do is internalize it and spit it back out. And so it's like going to college, but now uh, with different professors every hour. I don't yeah. think that answered the question, but we're going to go with it. <laughs> no, no, it's, no I, I think it did. I mean, because I mean, at the end of the day, it's kind of like, how do you, the, the, you know, the question, uh, how do you learn? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, the answer is that, you know, through, through doing a job, through, through experiencing it, through internalizing everything and focusing uh, on that. And, and, in a way, it's kind of it's it's a two way street. The, the learning is keeping you satisfied, keeping you going, and moving you. So it's kind of a, a perpetual perpetual system. It makes perfect sense uh, to yeah. me. You know, the, the one thing the one thing that I you know I think uh, can be a little terrifying in this advocacy is when you feel like you, you can't sprint fast enough in your learning process to to do it. Which is certainly a feeling that I've had a lot is when you kind of wonder is, is that you know like things are progressing so fast in so many areas that, you know, I'm learning as, as much as I can. And I'm writing, I'm writing blog on a topic that I, I learned about yesterday <laughs> and I'm pretending that I'm an expert in it, <laughs> just waiting well, for someone to call me out. One of the, and I, I know that feeling, but one of the interesting things is it's really useful to remember that the cutting edge things that we're talking about are very seldom apropos right this second that we're creating them for the future because uh you know it's possible i i was at the talk where kelsey hightower said nobody should use kubernetes in production um because it's not ready and then everybody went out and did it anyway and they they had to make it ready uh it was it was a funny moment though um and what i realized was that that cutting edge is a very tiny percentage of the people doing technology. They're mostly what I think of as sort of the born digital companies, the, you know, SaaS providers. Uh, but the banks, they're coming along. They're, they're doing it in bits and pieces here and there. But like I said, they still have IBM mainframes in their basement that run the majority of their actual business. And so even though when you're in this, it's almost like being, it's Tour de France right now. So I'm thinking in bicycle analogies. It's like being in the breakaway. You're in a group and you're riding really fast and you're trying not to get caught. But the vast majority of people are in the peloton. And in fact, the vast, vast majority of the world is not an elite cyclist. They're like tooling <laughs> along on a bike path at like, you know, 15 kilometers per hour and they're perfectly happy. And so at some point, like me, they like watching the Tour de France, but it's not what they're going to be doing tomorrow. It's like aspirational, kind of. Like they may never want to move that fast, but they may be like, 
one day I'm going to I'm going to be able to ride, you know, a metric sentry. This is this is a goal. I'm going to ride a metric sentry. Okay, that is like a goal that a human could achieve. And there are lots of companies where they're like, I want a goal that a reasonable company could achieve, not like, you know, Uber. Uber has a real lack of constraints that makes their technology adoption make sense. If you just pour money onto a bonfire, it will catch fire and you will continue to have a bonfire for a while. And so their technology constraints are not the same as people who have to, you know, account for where it's going. Yeah, I can definitely see I, when I arrived in the development environment, I thought like people are experts at everything. And then you slowly found out that it's so much that people had the chance to learn about a certain aspect of things because they had time and resources uh, to focus on that at that moment. And and so they, if they can share it in the to the world or to their community in a synthesized way or, or explanatory way, it has so much value already. And you don't need to be a, a ultra ex, a, expert in your language or in your in whatever you do. You you have a project. You have the time and resources to focus on a certain ap- aspect of, of things. So you should create value out of that and share it with other people. And that's that's uh, why the developer community is so interesting for that because there is so many participation, so much you know, so so much content creation and 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 sharing. Uh, it's really cool. Yeah, I think about it sort of like during the pandemic, everybody got super into sourdough. <laughs> it's not like we didn't know about sourdough. Like sourdough was a thing that existed. It was just not something that anybody cared about. And there are people who have like proofing boxes now. And I'm like, now that you can go outside again, that's the loneliest proofing box ever. You're going to make sourdough like once a year. Um, and, and you're going to have to restart your starter. But at the time, we all learned about it together. And we relied on the people who had sort of forged that ground to teach us. And now a lot of us have this semi-useless knowledge, but no knowledge is ever actually wasted. Uh, I mean, and your analogy you know. game is on on top of the world. I've, I've never seen such things. I'm, I mean, oh. I'm not even sure how we got to sourdough, but I'm loving it. Well, it's about learning. Like we all wanted to learn about sourdough and we relied on these people who had been like out on the fringe doing like avant-garde yeast nursing and now we're like yeah teach me about that okay i've now learned enough to be you know competent and and we didn't need to be yeast pioneers ourselves Hmm. and i think the same is true for development is like we can learn a lot about being competent yeah yeah no i i definitely feel it and and it can be intimidating when people are so knowledgeable about a topic that uh you know like you can think to yourself like how can you keep up with this but uh when it narrows down to it that we can all be educators and we can all be learners but we can't be educators and learners at this you know on the same topic at the same time we need to you know we 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 need to focus on the 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 learning aspect where it makes sense and then narrow our our energy on the education to where we can really make a difference right and i think we, we sort of stopped publishing the Four Dummies books, uh, but I actually thought it was a really interesting model. You know, it was like HTML for dummies was literally my first HTML book uh, because it had I all have, the things I, I needed. I had French for dummies on my desk. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we decided it was not nice to insult our audiences. I think it's really what happened. But uh, <laughs> most of us need 
technology for dummies, not like technology for people who are already very good at the technology. And mm. so one of the things that we provide is the the human aspect, like, okay, sure, you wrote that and you understand it down to like the bit flipping. Uh, but what I actually need to know is if I can send things to my bank securely. Yeah. And I mean, going down to this, all this information, all this, all this knowledge and all that, how does, how does, how does this translate into kind of creating that good content, creating that good documentation in, in these topics? How, you know, what is the kind of level playing field or the, the middle ground that we, we need to find when we're trying to go into, okay, so I understand that the, the bit flipping and, you know, and, but you need to know this part, you know, what, when we're creating this documentation, when we're creating uh, content as a developer advocate, you know, where, where's the middle ground that we want to, that we want to find and, and how do we get there? Uh, so there are two answers for that. The first one is create a really solid persona that you're targeting. Who are you talking to? And I don't mean like I'm talking to a sysadmin. I mean, I'm talking to somebody named Laura who has been working at a university for 20 years doing IT. And uh, she manages, you know, the this many servers. You know, so like that precisely targeted persona really helps you write to somebody because you can infer their education and their their constraints and do that. The other thing is we've lost so much in the way of really cool tech writing tools. I mean, they exist still, but uh, technology is not using them for reasons that I'm unclear on. Uh, but we used to be able to do what we call uh, progressive documentation where you could read like the first part it's sort of like the the Wikipedia summary. You know, when you search on something, Google will frequently return the Wikipedia first paragraph that is frequently all you really needed to know. And then if you care about it more, you can go in and read the full article. And if you care about it really a lot, you can go read the references. We need that kind of progressive reveal of information so that people can stop when they have what they need to get on with and not have to read the whole everything so in so many ways i get offended when i look at you know like the you've you've given me so many complete changes in how i think about success in content and advocacy uh, throughout this it, and uh, the latest one is now is now saying that you know like we one of the success metrics that we use on documentation that we have and also on articles technical articles it's like about how long has someone stayed on the page for, you know, how long did mm -hmm. they read it? Again, this could be a sign of, you know, does everyone need to spend 10 minutes on your page? Or is the fact that they spent one minute on there, got the answer they need, you know, like that. I mean, obviously we need to decide are people leaving because it's useless or are they leaving because they got what they needed? But right. I, I guess it's a, a total change in, in how we think of success and content. Mm. Yeah, like if if the answer is in the first paragraph, they're only going to stay a minute. That's not a bounce. That's a victory. Yeah, yeah. No, very true. Very true. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell this to my boss <laughs> in our next KPI meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Look at all the victories I had this month. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, interested into the persona, uh, persona aspect of things. Does that mean you don't start to create content before uh, until you've had your persona figured out and is it a hard exercise like do you feel tempted to 
forget about it and do like follow your gut feeling? How, how do you manage that? So it turns out that I personally, um, if I have writer's block, it's because I don't know who I'm writing for. Um, it, for for talks, for blog posts, for whatever, if I don't have a persona in mind, I have writer's block because I don't know what I need to deliver. Like I have all of this information swirling around my head, uh, but I don't know which parts to spit out. So I never skip that. Uh, one of the things that really eases this for me is when a company has personas pre-built. And uh, I've seen them done as like trading cards, but they're really effective. Uh, when I was working at Microsoft in 2005, right, uh, there was a persona named Ichiro, who was an IT admin who liked to walk his dog on weekends, who uh, had gone to college, but had a BA. And it like, I remember this persona what, you know, more than almost two decades later mm. because it was so vivid. And so when I was writing something for that project, I would be thinking about Ichiro and and what he needed to know and what he wanted to get his job done. And if I'm ever blocked on writing something, I go back and say, okay, what does this person need? from me? How can I give that to them instead of like, how can I explain what I understand about this? And it's this, it seems like a really subtle shift, but it's actually radical to say like, not what do I know, but what do they need? Yeah, there's been such a theme, I think, in talking to you today and listening to you talk about this is that you so passionately you, I, I should, okay, I almost went into a compliment there, but thank <laughs> it you. Seems like you're, it seems that, uh, you know, like everything uh, revolves around adding value to, to a person. When you're on stage, you talked about trying to, okay, I need to give this person this information and then that's okay. I need to find this. So I think that that really comes through. And, and it's, uh, you know, I, I think it's a really important point that I'll take away from this is that really understanding who you're helping and being able to help people energizes you, it focuses you and it kind of can help you through some of the, the difficult parts. Uh, I think that, that uh, that's definitely going to be one of the, the key takeaways that I think. And it feels like in every avenue we've went down on this podcast, from bicycles to sourdough, that was the core element was focusing back on, yeah, you know, who, who are we trying to kind of educate who are we trying to help who are we trying to understand or communicate with as an advocate but, and the more that we can focus on that uh, uh, the, you know the better that we can become but you, you make it sound so easy and i'm a bit jealous <laughs> because I've, I've, i feel that and it's funny because what you talk about in terms of dev developer relationship uh, works in so many ways like i work in marketing so of course pers persona uh, is, is something important, but I was talking to my salesperson and he was wondering, you know, like, who are my clients? What what are their needs? Who What what animate them? And then I talked to the tech team and they were wondering the same thing about the users and my CEO was wondering the same thing. And we're all trying to figure out, because we're still a young company, who, who, what's the persona in different di dimensions? And then you have the daily life of the company, which is, you know, your personality that sometimes you, people get tired and you have... Uh, and you have, you know, you, you need to meet uh, uh, revenue goals or you, you're trying to do something with your project and you're not 
quite reaching it and it gets frustrating and then you forget about the persona and you're like trying to do something because it feels right uh, but but you lose sight of why you're doing it which is for someone so this empathy focused uh, empathy centered attitude seems so obvious and yet for me i feel it's so like it's so difficult these days i wouldn't keep saying it if it were easy to do <laughs> yeah, yeah very true well we're wrapping up towards the end of the podcast and i feel that uh what's that alex you're doing that 50 53 54 minutes every time we're always losing every sight. time yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't know we set out for 45 minutes we can never we can never every time we put it down but That's i felt cool. like I, we're about to go to the two hour mark yeah no no we, yeah uh, you're right I, I record a podcast and we've just given up and we break them into two every time I'm like, yeah we're going to record a podcast uh, this is the new strategy <laughs> Because then you have a 20 minute like clip and uh, it's a little easier to consume. (laughs) Well, look, I just want to thank you again. I've had some uh, pretty big shifts in the way that I think about particularly not just who we're focusing on, but also in the success of the content and, uh, you know, like what, 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 how to measure that. So, you know, Hadi, thank you again for coming on. Uh, I'm sure. Thank you. I'm sure our audience will create some great value from it. If people want to follow you on social media, how what's the best channels or best uh, handles to, to follow you in? So I am at Wired Ferret on both Twitter and Polywork, although I have to tell you that my Polywork profile is still very much a work in progress. It's not on fire, so I haven't done it. Um, and I'm going to promo my new book. Uh, a team and I have written a book called Docs for Developers, an engineer's field guide to writing documentation. And it should be out at the end of summer and you can pre-order it now from A-Press. That's awesome. I think that's going to be uh, a, a staple, a staple on the advocates table for sure. Hopefully so. Now I know what I'm going to well, get uh, uh, for Mackenzie uh, oh. for his birthday. <laughs> <laughs> oh <laughs> uh, yeah that's a good present uh, let's do it S- september september it's coming up so, uh, <laughs> so write that down alex <laughs> all right well thanks alex thanks heidi uh, it's been great and uh hopefully catch you again in one of the other episodes thank you very all right much. thanks talk to you later